Welcome to the audiobook speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the speakeasy. I've met many audiobook professionals and avid listeners on my journey as an audiobook narrator, and I'm looking forward to introducing them to you. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and enjoy a friendly chat about audiobooks and audiobook production. Here with me tonight in the speakeasy is a Grammy-nominated recording engineer. She's an audiobook narrator and narration coach, and in her free time, she's a producer and director at Blackstone Publishing. Jamie Matler, thanks for stopping by the speakeasy tonight. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Glad you could be here. I know you're incredibly busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time to stop in and chat. Absolutely. So what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I am drinking some red wine. Nice. Mm-hmm. Who's the, uh, who's the vineyard? I don't know. Oh, you don't have the <laughs> bottle right in front of you. No, I meant to, and then I forgot. It's um, <laughs> it's a Malbec, which is one of my favorite wines. Ah, uh, me too. Um, but this wine is not particularly delicious. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of an average Malbec, huh? It was it's average. I rated it three and a half stars on Vivino, uh. and uh, I opened it on Monday, so it's tasting real ripe right now. <laughs> that is a bit old in terms of open wine bottles. Well, That's right. joining you for a drink tonight, I am having. I'm fighting a cold, and so I am having an unsweetened vodka gimlet. I figure the juice of a whole lime could not really do me any harm, and might do me some good. Fair enough. All right. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Quick sip. All right. So I believe you're uh, living on the East Coast at this point. Are you uh, Are you actually living in New York or do you just commute into New York? Um, it depends on what you consider New York or not. I live in <laughs> Brooklyn, which is technically New York City. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, although many people think Manhattan is just New York City. Uh, so, yeah, I do live in New York City. All right. Cool. So how do you like it out there? I struggle with it. Oh, really? Uh, it's great. New York is really, really amazing. And I push myself to be very busy because why else would I be living in New York unless I was taking advantage of everything here? Sure. Um, so on top of being a workaholic, uh, I also do improv. So I'm on an improv team that practices and performs once a week. Wow, that's great. I love improv. Yeah. I took an improv workshop a while back and I thought this could be really fun. And then it just... Never got into my schedule, but uh, it's it's, good, good it's stuff. a lot. You have to make it's a lot of time commitment, and mm. and it's hard. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It, it was really hard for me when I started, kind of you know opening up and being open to living in the moment and and all that goes into it. It was really hard. By the end of the workshop, I thought this has done me a lot of good. Oh yeah, I um, I would say it actually helped me a lot in my personal life and my work life. Even if I never got on an improv team, I would be so grateful to improv um, because uh, I worked in retail for a number of years. Um, and specifically, the, the hardest job in retail I worked was I was a cashier at Whole Foods for two years. Mm -hmm. And when you have to stand on your feet behind a register and say hello politely to people for eight hours a day <laughs> and people can be mean to you all day long. And you can't say anything to them because it's a corporate environment. You have to just keep a smile on your face and continue on. Yep. Um, there was a suppression of personality. And when I stopped working at Whole Foods, it took me a long time to remember uh, who I was and how to communicate with people in an authentic way. Wow. Um, and improv really opened me up and made it easier for me to... Um, be myself, not be afraid to be myself, 
And, you know, especially in this work, I work with a new person every day. So someone new comes into my environment and I immediately have to start a conversation with them. So I, I owe so much of who I am and my success to improv at this point. Well, that is fantastic. I've, I've heard a lot of great things about improv from people on podcasts and shows over the year. And having done the experience of going through a workshop, I did think it was great. I have never heard that particular take on it, and I love it. I, I think that's great. Uh, do you think that improv is really good for any actor? I think improv is good for any person. <laughs> um, I, you know, they have uh, improv classes for uh, corporate clients where an improv coach will go in and do a day with all these people so that they can learn how to communicate with each other in mm -hmm. the office. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's good for everyone. I think it's great for actors. Um, it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you thinking about things. Um, yeah. And it also, you know, not thinking about things, just trusting your gut and going with it. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and it's always yes and. Yes and. And learning how to say no and making it a yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's great. So uh, you're in New York now. Where are you from originally? I'm from Detroit, the the suburbs of Detroit. Mm. Another another big city, but then when you added suburbs, I guess it's kind of not really the big city. Uh, I mean, look, Detroit's like one of the weirdest cities in the world. <laughs> um, the actual landmass of Detroit is huge. And yet at this point, it's been a while since I checked, but I want to say it's like under 600,000 people live in Detroit. Oh, wow. And it's massive. But then when you include the suburbs of Detroit, it's something like 3 million people. Mm, still a big metropolitan. Very big metropolitan area, but it's just a dying city. It's mm. been dying since the 60s, and people just leave. It's abandoned. Um, but the suburbs are, you know, I, I haven't been there in a while. I can't really talk about what the suburbs are like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a weird city. There were a lot of things I really liked about it because there's not a lot going on in Detroit. Uh, it was actually a really place to grow up because everyone has to make their own thing happen. So there were lots of house shows in basements, backyards, garages, uh, because bands weren't playing at know. venues that were 21 and over bands that came to town played in the suburbs. They played at people's houses. Sometimes they would play at a club and thank God there weren't 21 and over rules at those clubs, but it made it um, such a wonderful place to be a little punk rock kid. <laughs> and were you a little punk rock kid? As much as I could be. Uh, <laughs> I, You know, my, my seventh grade yearbook photo, my hair is pink and green. So oh, wow. if that makes me punk rock, then yes, I was so punk. Yeah, seventh, um, seventh grade, I would say that's that's pretty aggressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I listened to punk bands and I played music and I was in a couple punk bands. How punk was I? I mean, I, I you know, I was a really goody two shoes, but I don't think you have to be bad to the bone to be punk. Sure. Yeah. What instrument did you play? Uh, I play guitar and I sing. Do you still? Yes. I actually released a record last spring. No kidding. That's great. I did. Thank you. That's great. Do you play locally in New York now? No, uh, there has been a long road that has uh, led me to not really playing very much. And it started with um, a health issue in my left wrist. Uh, and uh, I had a ganglion cyst, which uh, was very painful and was not visible to the eye. So people thought I was being crazy. Um, but I finally had surgery in March last year and I have full use of my wrist now. Oh, that's so great. I 
I can, I started going back to yoga. I can go swimming now. I can play guitar now. Things I couldn't do for about five years. Five um, years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So well, yeah. Great. So I'm, I'm get- glad, glad you're on the mend. Thank you. That's great. And I hope you are. Do you have plans to start playing in clubs and stuff? Um, I, I did. I don't know about playing in clubs, but just playing more in general and practicing. Mm-hmm. I had plans to do all that and then foolishly got a dog. Over the summer, <laughs> um, which has taken up all my free time. Sure, yeah. Uh, he's uh, a, a joy, a delight, and a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I get that about pets. Well, that's uh, that's great. So, um, so after you got done with uh, all the basics in Detroit, did you go to uh, college? Yes, I went to Columbia College in Chicago for audio engineering. And uh, really, so that was my- your in- was that your intention at the very beginning of starting school? Yeah. Uh, Columbia College is um, basically an uh, an arts-focused school. So you start your program freshman year, day one, your first class. Uh Mm -hmm. So um, not only is it a four-year bachelor's in audio engineering, but my very first year, I was learning how to use Pro Tools. Um, I had to take science classes um, uh, like the I had to take an electronics class where we learned to calculate circuits and build circuits and solder wires, um, which came in handy because I have soldered many headphones over the years. <laughs> and um, I had to take an uh, acoustics of audio physics class. So yeah, it was like a whole degree starting from freshman year in That's audio. That's fantastic, and that was and that was what you you went in for. And why did you do that? Uh, well, I started playing guitar when I was 11 years old, and I really liked music. And when I was 17, I went into a studio and recorded my first record. And I was like, this is cool. And my mom said, you know, you can be an engineer if you want. And I was like, all right, let's do that. That's great. <laughs> That's great to have that support at home, too. Yeah. So, yeah, my mom took me on a road trip my senior year of high school, and we went to uh Rochester, New York, and Syracuse, and down uh, over to Boston, and I looked at Emerson and a few schools in Massachusetts, and then um, I ended up at Columbia College because I had a friend there, and Chicago was closer to Detroit, and um, yeah, I, I got into the University of Michigan, but just freaked out about being that close to home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two-edged sword there. Yeah. Well, that's great. I didn't realize that you had a a full degree in in engineering. I mean, I know you're on the you do a lot on the production side, but I didn't realize it was a a full degree. That's great. Yeah. So, uh, once you got out of school for with the audio engineering degree, did you start working right away in audio production? I moved to Seattle uh, about six months after I graduated, and wrote every studio I could find on the internet saying that I was looking for an internship. And uh, luckily, this one studio, Chroma Sound, got back to me. And apparently what happened was the owner, Jason, wrote uh, another engineer I worked at at a studio, or I worked with at a studio in Chicago that was called Engine Studios. And Jason wrote Balthazar and was like, hey, I got this email, this resume from this guy, Jamie. Is he any good? <laughs> and and Balthasar wrote, wrote back, Jamie's great. Uh, Jamie's a girl. <laughs> and he was like, all right, okay. And he called me in. And I don't even know if they were looking for an intern, but uh, they hired me. So that was 
when I was working at Whole Foods and I was also working part time at a record store. And then I was also interning at this music studio. Oh, my God. Yeah. Workaholic. Workaholic. I would usually go about two months without a day off. And then I would have one day off and I would do my laundry and sleep. And then I would go back to two months without a day off. Wow. Which is things you can do in your 20s. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. I mean, if you have enough clean clothes for two months, wow. Um, So uh, Seattle, that's that's, uh, quite a change from either Detroit or Chicago. Was that just to get farther away from home? Yeah, uh, very much so. And also, I'd never been to Seattle, but um, the band that really got me into music when I was in third grade was Pearl Jam. And oh so, my God, you're making know, me feel so old. I okay, I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> you know, I was I was a, a very hip third grader, uh, and I didn't really know anything about Seattle. I just knew that I wanted to leave, and I didn't know where to go. And I just said to myself, you know what? Pearl Jam's from Seattle. I'll just go there. That's and I literally drove across the country on that whim, uh, and that's how I ended up in Seattle. That's great. Well, that is certainly the birthplace of a lot of uh, a lot of music back in back in my day. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, so you went to work in Seattle, and uh, yeah. how'd that go? Uh, Seattle was great. I love it. Uh, I worked at that music studio for two years. The whole time I was in Seattle, um, it was really amazing. I'm still friends with uh, Jason, the owner. He actually played organ and accordion on my record that came out last spring. Nice. Um. And I got to work uh, with some amazing people. I got to work um, with Kurt Block, who is a producer and was in the Fastbacks, which was a big band in uh, in, Se- in Seattle in, in the early 90s. Um, I got to work with Johnny Sangster, who's a big producer in Seattle. I got to work with John Auer of the Posies, who was producing a record. I got to work with Sean Nelson, who's the singer of Harvey Danger, which was that, you know, they had that one, one big hit. Um Sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so I got to like I got to meet a ton of really like amazing Seattle like old school working musicians and producers. Um, I got to work with Mark Pickrell from the Screaming Trees. He was playing drums on everybody's records. Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty cool. That, it sounds great for your background in music and wanting to do the audio engineering because of your love of music. Yeah. It sounds like a great time. Yeah, it was really great. And then I had a rough year, one of my roughest, and I just thought to myself, I just need to get out of here. I need to change. I need to run away. Mm. And I, I left Seattle on the, the similar kind of whim that I rolled in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably should have stayed, but... Uh, but I left after two years. But life goes on. So where'd you go? I went to L.A. after that. Oh, where'd you live in L.A.? Uh, I started off crashing with family in Van Nuys in the Valley. Mm-hmm. And I was with them for about five months. I moved to Hollywood for about seven months, um, right off of Hollywood Boulevard. And then I wasn't really feeling L.A., um, it was hard there. It's very schmoozy. That's not my thing. It is. And uh, after less than a year, I sort of started planning my exit. And part of it was um, I was getting to the point where it was right at the tail end of my ability to go on birthright to Israel. Hmm. And 
So I applied for birthright. I got in um, and I thought to myself, look, if the Israeli government is going to pay for me to be on the other side of the world, I might as well stay there for a while. (laughs) So I extended my ticket and instead of just going for 10 days, um, I ended up staying on the other side of the world for four months. Nice, long and time. Did, it was did a nice have, long trip. Do you have family there or anybody to no. stay with in particular? Mm-hmm. You just you just went to go and it was just you. That was it. It was just me. Wow. And I I stayed in Israel for about two, two and a half weeks at the start of my trip. And then I booked a flight from Israel to Athens. And then I was in Greece. I took a ferry boat from Greece to Venice. I went I mean, traveled around Italy. I went to Prague, Berlin, Nice, Zurich, um, Istanbul. I went back to Israel for a month and stayed with uh, the family of a girl I met in Israel and just sort of hung out. Damn. And then and then I, I caught a flight to London and stayed with a girl I'd met in Italy who was from London. And, and then it was uh, about four months and I ran out of money. <laughs> That'll happen after and a four-month trip. Holy cow. Yeah. That sounds yeah. great, though. I mean, It was really amazing. Yeah, no doubt. I'll bet those are some memories that you'll have for as long as you live and, uh, and enjoy them. Yeah. It was uh, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. That's fantastic. So, see, wouldn't have happened if you hadn't left Seattle. This is true. This is true. <laughs> Got to look on the bright side in retrospect. <laughs> That's cool. So, uh, so then after staying in London, you came back here? Yeah, I, I went back to California and I crashed around there for a couple weeks. And then, uh, oh God, this is this is one of my favorite stories. I was in LA and I thought to myself, I've already lived in Chicago. I've already lived in Seattle. I've already lived in LA. Where else can I go? <laughs> and, and I thought, well, it's either going to be New York or San Francisco. And I thought, well, you know what? I'll just give New York a shot. I had I had never had this feeling of like, gotta get to New York. And I know a lot of people feel that way. I just, you know, it was sort of like, well, I'll try it. Mm-hmm. I'll give it one year. So I went on Craigslist and I thought, I'll just look for some jobs on Craigslist. And I, you know, filled filled out a bunch of, you know, fixed up my resume, sent out a bunch of emails to a bunch of jobs. One of them said, be a personal assistant to a prominent woman in the music industry. And I thought, sure, I'll send my resume out for that. What the hell? It's music. What the hell? It's music. I need a job <laughs> when I get to to New York. So then I um I go to Phoenix to visit my mom, and yeah, I thought there was I, an Arizona connection in there. There's an Arizona connection. Yeah, a yeah. year ago you were talking about doing a, a workshop in Phoenix, and yeah, uh, that I don't think that happened. But no, um, it didn't happen. But, but I, was, I I will still plan on it because my mom still lives there. Yeah, no, that'd be great because I'm in uh, Tucson, so it's only a couple of hours, and I know I'm now in a, a Facebook group for voice actors in Arizona. A uh, little difficult to do it for voice actors in Tucson because there's only like five of us. But um, or <laughs> five is a good number for a workshop. Okay, there so, are actually probably more than that. But uh, you know the the industry being what it is, everybody's kind of all over the place, and a lot of times yeah. you don't even know that somebody down the street's doing the same thing. But I do know people in uh, Phoenix and north of Phoenix uh, who would probably be interested in that. So you can definitely. Well, if that. you guys want a workshop. Just let me know. I'll plan a trip. I'll come down, hang with my mom, and we'll do a workshop. Cool. Cool. I'll definitely I'll get a hold of Al Kessel and uh, a few other people I know and uh, and see who's interested. So cool. I'm sorry. I interrupted you there. So uh, so Phoenix. So you were in L.A. You went to Phoenix. I'm in, I'm in Phoenix. I'm hanging out with my mom. I get an email. 
It says, thanks so much for applying to be the personal assistant to Roberta Flack. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's that's they, a name from my childhood. Right. I was like, these people are fucking with me, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's like the only thing in my head. These people are fucking with me. And I'm like, well, <laughs> what's it hurt? They sent me this like long questionnaire. Like, please answer these questions. I'm like, okay, I don't have anything better to do. I answer all these questions. <laughs> I send it in. And I don't think anything of it. And then I fly to New York. And when I get off the plane, I have a voicemail message. Hi, Jamie. Are you free this week? We'd love to bring you in to interview to be Roberta Flack's personal assistant. Wow. <laughs> I feel like some, I'm like getting punked. I'm like, what is happening? And I was like, yeah, okay. So I call them back. I set it up. It's my first week in New York, and I'm interviewing to be Roberta Flack's personal assistant. That's I go to the interview. Awesome. I meet her office manager. I do the interview. I think they said they interviewed like 20 people. And I thought, okay, well, we'll see what happens. And then uh, a couple weeks pass by. I get another phone call. Jamie would like to bring you in for a second interview to be Roberta's personal assistant. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is certainly <laughs> happening. So I go in and I go to this woman's apartment on the Upper West Side. Her name is Anne. And I'm one of, I think, five or six people interviewing at this point. And I'm in the office, and I'm so intimidated. And um, Anne's interviewing me. She's very nice, but she's very intimidating. And uh, at the end of the interview, she looks at me, and she goes, well, you're not right for the job. But I really like you. What do you do on Wednesday night? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, nothing. I don't have a job. I got, I got nothing. And she's like, well, I, I have uh, these songwriters that come over every Wednesday night. Why don't you come in and and, uh, and hang out with us? And I thought, okay. And wow, what a, she what ended a way up, to make a connection. It was it was amazing. It turns out that Anne um, is sort of was she passed away a couple of years ago. Anne was um, a very well connected background person in the music industry. She played with the jazz bands in the 60s. She toured with T-Rex for five years as a keyboard player. She um, sang background vocals on over a thousand commercial records. Um, she was a, 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 what's it called? Uh, she was on the board of the Grammys for 10 years. She started Grammys in the schools. She uh, was a jingle writer in the 90s. She's coached and taught so many people. Suzanne Vega is one of her students. Talk about um, connected. Oh, my connected. gosh. I met so many people through her, including Roberta Flack. So you um, did get to meet her. I got to meet Roberta. I met Roberta a handful of times. I never spoke to her. I just let her talk to me. She would tell stories. I would laugh and smile, and I never <laughs> said a word to her. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, I got to meet uh, a lot of people through Anne. Um she, yeah, and she was amazing, and she basically became my New York mom for many years. Uh, I would probably be over there at least once a week, if not two, three, four times a week for years, for about six years. Wow. Well, that's that sounds great. So when was this? This uh, this was in 2009 that I met Anne. All right. So that was um, so that was a little while ago. Yeah. So. So all of this work with music and musicians and all of that, how did you get into audiobooks? So uh, also my first year in New York, I, I told myself I will accept every job that comes my way and I will meet as many people as I can. 
Um, so uh, things that happened, I became a nanny to an Upper West Side family. I was working for Anne. She had ended up hiring me to be her personal assistant and office manager. Um, I was doing data entry for a garden designer. I worked the Christmas season at Crate and Barrel. And I started going to these networking events. Uh, I don't think it's a working group anymore, but at the time it was called The Connectors NYC. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I just knew I knew I had to meet people. And one of the guys I met at one of the first Connectors meetings I went to is a guy named David Weiss. And David Weiss runs a website called Sonic Scoop. And Sonic Scoop uh, basically is all the dish of everything that's happening at music studios in New York City. And through him, just staying connected with him, he would invite me to parties at music studios around the city. And I would always go anytime David sent me anything. He just, man, what an incredible, connected, awesome, brilliant guy. Sure. And after about a year, um, and he had, he had a, a partner at the time, Janice Brown, who also works in music and studios. And I can't remember if it was Janice or David, but one of them wrote me, I'd been in New York for about a year, and they said, Jamie, our friend just fired an engineer. Send your resume ASAP right now. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I sent my resume. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what was happening. They just said, send your resume. And I said, okay. And I sent my resume. And the next day I got a phone call. And he said, I want to bring you in for an interview. I said, okay. And I went in for the interview. And he said, so we record audiobooks here. And I go, cool. What's an audiobook? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, it's okay. You know how to engineer. You'll be fine. And I go, okay. And the next week I was recording and editing and QCing audiobooks. So which, which studio was this? This was Out Loud Audio, which is on 54th Street. Okay. That's that's pretty amazing. So you get to New York and yeah. you're meeting all these musicians and everybody, but you're not actually doing any engineering work at that point, but nope. it's still your background and it's still on your mm -hmm. resume. And all of a sudden this just drops in your lap and all yes. of a sudden you're into audiobooks. That's right. That's great. Yeah. And this is also where I met Amanda Rose Smith because she had been working at this studio for six months at that point. Ah. So I've known Amanda since the very beginning. She taught me how to record and edit audiobooks. That's great. Yeah, I just talked to Amanda a few weeks ago mm -hmm. uh, here in the Speakeasy. So so that's fantastic, and that's how you got into it. So uh, were you there? Did, did you continue to work for them for the foreseeable future at that point? Yes, I was at Out Loud for about three years. And... Within my first year, the owner decided he wanted to start to build business out in L.A. So he started living in L.A., which meant there was a lot of opportunity for Amanda and I. And over the course of my first year, I went from just editing audiobooks, editing and QCing, to recording, editing and QCing, to doing voiceover and ADR for television cartoons, big shows. Um, I did ADR and voiceover for three seasons of America's Next Top Model. Got to work with Tyra Banks every time the show was about to air. Nice. Um, I worked on uh, Weeds, Burn Notice, um, Arrested Development, 
Orange is the New Black. I got to work on a handful of Disney cartoons. Um, I got to work with Tim Gunn for all of his dialogue for Sophia the First. Um, it was pretty amazing, yeah, all the no stuff. Doubt. So I'd been working in audiobooks for about a year, and I found out I was going to be recording Kate Winslet. Oh, wow. And I freaked out. <laughs> I freaked <laughs> out. Oh, my God. And then I was told Mike Charzik was going to be directing, and I this was I'd never met him yet. And I, I thought, oh, my God, Mike Charzik, the head of Audible. Oh, my God, Kate Winslet. Oh, this is so embarrassing. I'm just <laughs> freaking out. And... Mike came in and we just clicked and Kate came in and she was so chill and down to earth. She wore yoga outfits every day and she brought her own lunch and she would show us pictures of her hot boyfriend and she had a huge potty mouth and (laughs) she was wonderful and a great actress. And I still think that her reading of Therese Raquin is one of my favorite audiobooks I've ever gotten to record. That's great. So, um, so this was still where you were, and now you're at Blackstone, but it seems to me that there's a couple of years in between there. A few years in between. I was um, I left Out Loud after three years. I um, I got my first Grammy nomination while working at Out Loud. And what was that, that for? Was, that was for Michelle Obama's audiobook, um, American Grown, mm. for Penguin Random House. And then I went freelance for about three years. So what was the difference there like going freelance? Um, freelance, you have to hustle. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing is when the session's over, you don't have to keep working. You just go. <laughs> so <laughs> there were so many days at 4 p.m. I would be like, man, I'm done for the day. This is great. Um, but, you know, it's feast or famine when you're a freelancer. So I would oftentimes have... Um, a 10 to 4 session, and then I would go home and I would edit for some other client. Um, I was doing a lot of freelancing for Audible at the time. So sometimes I would do doubles. I'd get to Audible at 9.30 in the morning. I leave at 10 at night. I get home at midnight. You know, you do what you got to do. Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> kidding. So at, so at that point when you were freelancing, uh, mm-hmm. you were still working in people's studios. But you said yeah. that you would go home and edit, so you would also be working at home? Yeah, so I I had started working at John Marshall Media, CDM Studios, Audible, and then um, I would do some editing and QC for Audible, um, and ACX was starting to really pick up, so I started getting some a couple ACX clients that I would edit for, um, and it was I would say most of my work was still just engineering in studio, um, so- but I did have some editing. So now you're at Blackstone, and you've been there for a couple of years, if I remember correctly. Um, mm-hmm. Are you still doing stuff at home as well, or are you working what, whenever you do whatever you do, whether it's narration or you're coaching or working? Well, I assume that when you're working for Blackstone, you're there, but do you yeah. do stuff at home as well? Um, I have pretty much completely phased out editing and QC work. Uh, I just don't have time for it. Yeah. Um. And part of that is that I've picked up a lot of narration work um, and I'm having fun doing that. So I'm putting my my free time or my extra time or my non extra time that somehow gets squeezed in uh, into narrating, um, which I've been doing, I want to say, for about four years now. And so when you're narrating, are you narrating at Blackstone? 
No, I narrate at Rowan Audio in Jackson Heights, Queens. Oh, so so it's a different studio, but it is still a studio that is not in your home. That's correct. I don't have a home studio. Okay. Um. So Rowan Audio is out in Queens, and I love Pete and Judy, who run Rowan Audio. And it's pretty cool. It's their apartment, and it's a three-bedroom, and two of the bedrooms are studios. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I go out there, and it's nice because it's a full kitchen. It's a living room. It's super comfortable. Um, and I get to see my friends. And so when I narrate, it's a very pleasant environment to be in. That's great. So so what do you do primarily at Blackstone? Uh, primarily, I record and direct audiobooks. So 10 o'clock every day, I've got a session, almost every day. And that session goes for the whole day? Uh, it just depends on what I'm working on. Um, most sessions, I would say, are 10 to 4, 10 to 5. Uh, if I have um, short stories or multicasts, I might have like a bunch of weird short sessions that are all mushed together. Um, and then I've got pickup sessions and uh, I do auditions with authors. I've got two author auditions next week. And uh, next week, I, I think I have a busy schedule of 10 to 4, 4 to 6.30 on multiple days next week. So it's going to be sort of a long day. God, that just seems like such a long time to me as as a um, narrator who works at home. Yeah. 10 to 4. I, I mean, I, I assume that the talent gets a lunch break, but... Um, no lunch breaks. Really? So so it's like <laughs> six... No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how the big houses work, but uh, I mean, in-house, but... Holy cow, uh, you know, six, six you know, hours. It's way different working with an engineer than recording yourself. It's way, way different. Yeah, that's true, yeah. You know, because every time, you know, there's a mistake and we have to punch in, you know, I chime in, we talk, I, I you know, force people to take breaks. You know, I'm like, oh, come out, I have to go pee. I have, I'm going to get some water. It gets them stretching and then I go, let's get back in the booth. Um, we get to have chats and, you know... I think it it feels a little less uh, of a drag because you're working with somebody. Yeah, I could see that. Um, that that is one thing about working at home. Ooh, how isolating it is. Very isolating, and you have to be on yourself, and you get distracted, and um, it's very different. You know, not having to push the keys to just yeah. focus on the on the book, you get more in the can easier. Um, it it goes a lot faster and a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, well, that's good. So you don't have to worry about uh, home life being disturbing when it comes to doing work. I know that most of the people that I talk to, since a lot of it happens at home, I'm really curious about how you factor in home life and whether or not there are pets. You said you got a dog making noise. I have a dog and a cat. Kids, husbands, no. boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever it is. It's like, you know, people that are that are in your space can sometimes be a problem when it comes to narrating at home or or even just doing editing or, or other tasks, even if you're not recording. But it sounds right. like that's not an issue for you. No. Um, I, the only work I ever did from home was editing, and I'm not doing that anymore, which is nice because home is just home. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I've thought about building a home studio, um, but I just, I don't really have the time to be um, a full-time narrator anyway, because I'm already full-time at Blackstone. Right. And I don't, uh, you know, honestly, I don't want to be a full-time narrator. I really love engineering and directing, and I love having different things that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, that actually works for my brain, being able to like 
tackle lots of different projects. So um, it's kind of nice uh, just taking the recording fee out of my per finished hour rate and going to somebody else's place and saying, well, I don't have this overhead. I will pay them. And uh, I get to go home and have my relaxing environment. Yeah. So when you're narrating at uh, Mm -hmm. Rowan, is that uh, self-directed? You're doing everything yourself or is that, do you actually have an engineer there? Uh, it depends on the budget of the book. Mm. Um, some stuff I get, it's just, it's the per finished hour rate from the publisher. And so I just self-record it, um, cause I've got to pay a studio rental fee. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do ACX stuff, then I make sure that I get, um, a high enough per finished hour rate on ACX that I can afford to pay for production and post-production out of it. Sure. And then yeah. I'll hire them to engineer me. Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, being able to to do that, separate work and home, that's uh, that's great. It it doesn't always happen. It, you know, working at home is kind of a two edged sword. You're you don't have to go someplace, and on the other it's hand, really convenient. Yeah, very convenient. But on the other hand, you work at home, and so mm-hmm. it's uh, you know, there there are drawbacks too. So that's Lots great. Lots of hygiene you, issues. <laughs> could be, yeah. You've been in the booth for four days. Why don't you take a shower now? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, that's great that you have the option and that it seems to be such a good fit for you to uh, to work at Rowan. I love them. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So, uh, in terms of narrating, what are yeah. you? Uh, what have you done? What what kind of genres have you done? Do you like some more than others? Uh, I would say that. My go-to thing is, or what I feel good at and what I most often get hired for, um, is angsty, uh, angry, depressed kind of stuff. I get a lot of, um, like, teenage girls who are unhappy, struggling with something, um, coming of age, um... I did a a fake memoir last year that was a girl who went down this big drug binge and like her best friend dies and her brother dies and she, you know, just really, really dark stuff. That is sort of my thing. Um, angsty and dark. Um, and then also uh, I tend to be very good at snarky and sarcasm. So I've gotten hired for a lot of uh, quirky, sarcastic kind of characters. Um, I think a lot of people have a hard time with sarcasm. Um, I think the, being from the Midwest, it comes very naturally to me. Uh, and some people have a tendency to be a little too earnest or are afraid to be sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I think those are the things that I'm I'm most often doing, both fiction and nonfiction. Nonfiction stuff that's um, young and quirky and sarcastic, sort of first-person expl- explorations of ideas. It's interesting that you say, uh, because you're from the Midwest, the sarcasm thing comes easily because I'm from California and boy, when I was growing up, I used to get in trouble for being sarcastic. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I don't, I don't know why, I don't know how or when I learned what sarcasm was, but all of a sudden I found my voice. Yeah. I just remember the way, the way I speak and the way everyone I knew in the suburbs of Detroit spoke, like. We all got each other. It, I, it was very, maybe it was just a Detroit thing. But when I moved to Seattle, uh, people don't use sarcasm in Seattle. Hmm. They they don't quite register it. They don't quite understand it. Um, 
and they don't like it. Most of the time when I'm sarcastic in Seattle, people um, take me at face value and think I'm being mean uh. to the point where even some of my best friends, they have to be like, are you serious? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. And I have to actually curb it a lot. Um, it's just not part of uh, the the local way of speaking with each other. Wow, that's interesting. So uh, so young adult, teenage stuff, uh, that's, that's kind of what you gravitate towards. So on Audible, it doesn't look like you have that many books. Do you have uh, pseudonyms? Oh, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have um, two main pseudonyms. Uh, one is my romance erotica pseudonym, and uh, her name is Devra Woodward. Okay. Are you looking her up? No, no, not right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is recorded. Um, I can look it up later. <laughs> anytime. Uh, yeah, I think I have thir between 30 and 40 titles uh, under that name. Mm. And then my other pseudonym is Arden Hammersmith. And... The Arden Hammersmith name was meant to be non-erotic, um, sort of edgy, sort of the stuff that I get hired for in place of Jamie Matler putting out audiobooks. Mm -hmm. And my original thought was, well, my main thing is engineering and directing, and I just didn't want to mix those two things. So I just wasn't putting my real name out there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought to myself, why not? I don't know. It was just this summer that I thought, Eh, just put, just start putting it out under my real name. Yeah, I noticed so, the books that you have on there. That that one of them was in sixteen, but all the rest of them were this year. Yeah. So I, you know, I look back and I'm like, man, I, I guess I didn't really need Arden Hammersmith. I could have just been putting it out under my real name. Um, <laughs> but I also just really like the name Arden Hammersmith. Yeah, so sounds great. I, <laughs> I, I had a I had a lot of love for the name and stuck with it for a long time. That's that's cool. Um, I know some people don't like to give out their pseudonyms because they have them for a specific reason, which is, you know, I'm a school teacher by day. I don't want kids finding out that I do erotica, but, yeah. uh, some people don't mind. So thanks for sharing those. I'm sure that everybody yeah. listening will look them up. Yeah. I, I don't really mind. I pretty much anybody who asks me, I tell them. So I don't know really why I even have different pseudonyms. Um, <laughs> I think more than anything, like, because I do a lot of YA, if, I guess if kids are listening to my audiobooks, I don't want them to see a bunch of erotica, but I can't imagine that kids listening to YA are like looking for podcasts where I talk about myself. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully no, they it, don't. That makes sense. I mean, they could easily look up more books by the same narrator, but they're not going to be looking for a reference to that narrator's name someplace else and yeah. try to find out more about him. Yeah. So I really, it's just, you know, I don't want, you know, people who are looking for non-erotic books to find those. Sure. But I don't mind if people know that it's me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, um, so that sounds like on the, on the fiction angle, I mean, it's just, you know, basic fiction. Um, are there any things that you wouldn't do? Um, yes. Uh, I think you discover a lot about where you draw lines uh, when you start using ACX. Mm -hmm. And uh, my lines are, I don't do rape fantasy and I don't do daddy-daughter porn. Daddy-daughter so, porn. That is actually mm -hmm. a term that I have never heard before. It yeah. certainly seems pretty self-explanatory and I That's would right. think that I would probably stay away from that as well. Um, yeah. Interesting. 
Uh, what about what about religious themes, political themes, things that uh, uh, in, in the voiceover <clears throat> world in general, there are always conversations, you know, well, I would never do a political ad for that person and somebody else saying, well, I'm a voice actor. I'll, I'll use my voice for anything. Where do you where do you fall on that spectrum? Um, yeah, R- religious stuff. I don't think I would get hired for. I don't think I have the right sound and the right uh, demeanor for it. Um, political stuff, I guess it would be really hard to, to do something that I fundamentally disagreed with. I think if it was a memoir of someone who I fundamentally disagreed with, maybe I could just do their memoir. But if it was someone talking vehemently about like political ideas that I vehemently disagreed with, that might be harder for me. Mm. Yeah, that Mm. makes sense. I know that there are a lot of a lot of books out these days because of um, you know the political situation in this country for I would say the past uh, year and a half two years because things have um, changed so in my view drastically um, I know that there are a lot of analysis books out there and I'm always curious how people would would view it so you have one book that is uh, just completely negative on everything that's happened in the past year and then you've got another book that's praising Trump and whoever on what they've done. And I always find it interesting to hear what people would and would not be willing to narrate, give their yeah. voice to. Yeah, I remember. No, I won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> it's just us, Jamie. <laughs> oh, it's just us and the three million viewers live at home. Um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, maybe I would maybe I would draw a line. Uh, I haven't had to. I think what I'm right for usually comes my way and things that I'm wrong for don't come my way. I've only had one book come my way that I was terribly miscast on. And when they sent me the audition, I thought to myself, why are they having me audition for this? I'm so not right for it. (laughs) Um, And I thought, well, they asked for an audition, so I'll just turn it in. And they picked me as part of a multicast. And I thought, what are they thinking? But the author wanted me, so I feel bad, so I'll say yes, and I should have said no. And it was just, it was, it was wrong. The whole, so whole I think experience was negative, huh? The whole, the whole experience was negative only because I, I'm not, I wasn't the right person for the job. It, it, it's not even like I have anything, any problem with what the content of the book was. I'm just not the right person. It feels better when you're cast in things that make sense for you. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, I guess, you know, blowing out that picture of what would I say no to, I would say no to stuff that I'm just not right for. So if it was like politically something that like I couldn't even bring myself to the pa- the, the table to perform appropriately, then I'm not right for the book. Mm-hmm. So then it's it's like not even a question of like, could I do it? Would I do it? It's like, can I do it? Um, and like I said, I do dark stuff, angsty stuff, snarky stuff, sarcasm, that kind of thing. That's uh, my go-to thing because that's how my brain works and that's what I do well. Um, the book that I was miscast on, they wanted they, – they said they wanted happy, which is not my go-to thing. And the other things in the specs I, I leaned in on were warm and campfire. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I can do warm and campfire. I just started narrating like this. I made it really warm and campfire. And then that was what they picked for my audition for the whole book. And this was a multicast. And I think when they heard my audio compared to everyone else being like, and it's the best thing that ever happened in my <laughs> life, they, they wrote me back and they're like, Jamie, you can you 
can you listen to these other samples and redo all of your audio? Oh, my God. And I knew I was wrong for the project. And so I was so upset that I said yes because I had to do a book that was uncomfortable again. Like, another hour, hour and a half of audio. And it was like, it was like the longest three hours of my life the first time. And then an even longer three hours the second time. Yeah. Um, and I kept making mistakes. I couldn't get it out of my body. When, when you're cast in something that you're right for, it feels good. It comes out nicely. And when you're wrong for it, it doesn't work. So I guess, um, would I say no to stuff that religiously or politically I didn't agree with? Yeah, but probably just because I couldn't do it well mm -hmm. and it wouldn't feel good to me. Yeah. Um, if it's going to be torture the whole time you're working on it, why do it? What's What's the point? Yeah. What's the point? Like every time I narrate a book, I want to be like, ah, this just, oh, this feels good. Oh, I'm in it. Oh, I love this. Mm -hmm. um, because that's when you give your best performances anyway. Um, and I know that I'm coming from uh, a privileged a privileged place that I can say no to projects because I'm not making my living narrating. Right. So I, I have that advantage and I get it. Like, you know, it's feast or famine and we have to say yes to things, but you know, oftentimes we say no and something else comes our way. So I just, I yeah, Every, everybody's situation is different. I know that there was one point back in, uh, when I was in San Francisco, I was in my agent's office and waiting for my turn to go in the booth and do an audition. There were a couple of guys sitting outside and somebody said, oh, I just booked this, this commercial for, I don't know what it was, KFC or Taco Bell or some fast food place. And, uh, and his friend or whoever he was talking to there said, uh, I, I thought you were a vegetarian. And, and he said something like, yeah, who can afford to have ethics? Um, and, and it's just, you know, everybody's situation is different. Sometimes somebody's going to say, I would never do that. Well, you never know what you'll never do depending on what your situation is. Yeah. So, uh, you do coaching too. I do coaching. That's true. What, what's your coaching like? What do you coach on? I started coaching after working at the sag After Foundation voiceover lab in New York City. And um, I stole a lot from watching other people teach. Nothing wrong and with I learned that. A, nothing wrong with that. And um, the way that, the way that um, program is set up is, at least at, at the time when I worked there, um, I would have one-hour sessions from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. any time that I worked there. And I would learn, I, I, I ended up learning that different people needed different tools and different people needed more directness or more softness. Or if somebody wasn't understanding what I was saying, learning how to say it a different way. Um, and it was just sort of a crash course in how to communicate with people um, to teach them new ideas. Uh, and that gave me, I think I worked there for about two years, um, two years to really hone what my perspective was on audiobooks and how I want to coach people and teach people how to do it. Mm -hmm. So there are two, there are two main things that I think are important for audiobooks and everything that you do to me, um, comes back around to these two things. And those two things are authenticity and comprehension. Every single thing that I teach will either be leaning towards authenticity or comprehension. And often those two things then lead into each other. So whether or not it's thinking about dialogue in a way where it's not just character voices, but who is that person that will lean towards authenticity? 
And then when the dialogue is more authentic, it will pass on more comprehension. Makes sense. Yeah. So it sounds like you you kind of tailor the way that you coach to each student. Sounds like what you were describing there that that you picked up from the lab kind of goes along with what you were talking about earlier with improv about learning how to communicate and um, how to how to say things differently and get the message across to people who might hear things differently. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I I've got some things that I I will use with multiple different students. Um, I have something that I call the clarinet, which I'm not going to explain, but if you're curious about it, maybe I'll use it on, you know, a person at some point. But, um, you know, I had one student say, ah, and isn't the clarinet great to another one of my students? And that student was like, what's the clarinet? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, whatever somebody needs, that's what's going to come out of me. And that's what I'm going to share with them. Um, So, yeah, it's, you know, people, people, I think oftentimes want finite answers, what is coaching? What are you going to teach me? And you might need something different than somebody else. Sure. And and so I say, I don't know what I'm going to teach you until I hear you. And when I hear you, I'll know immediately, okay, this is the first thing we're going to work on. And then this is the next thing. And then here's some tool that I might use to help us get there. But no matter what things we're working on, we're always working towards authenticity and comprehension. Yeah. So those are the only things that are mainstays for me. And those are probably words that authenticity and comprehension are, are words that I'll probably say to every student that I work with. Okay. Well, that's great. So um, how would you feel about doing a little coaching session right now? Sure. I'd love to love to hear an, an example of uh, of something that would go on in a coaching session where you could be working towards one of those two goals with somebody. Okay. So... I think um, one of the main problems I come across, especially because um, people are learning how to do this at home by themselves uh, before they ever take any classes, mm, yeah. is um, narration style that does not sound like how they talk in real life. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a little more performance to narrating an audiobook, but if you go and listen to one of my samples on audible.com, it's not going to sound that different than how I'm talking to you in this interview. Mm-hmm. Some things that happen would be, um, this is my least favorite thing that happens. It's called, I call it the, the rhythm method. My life is none of their business. I don't want to be up here. Don't want to explain my reasons. But I can't afford to miss another assignment. And you can hear that everything I'm saying has a rhythm to it. We don't speak in rhythms. Mm -hmm. We speak chaotically, unexpectedly. Um, We never want to narrate in a rhythm. So, you know, being able to hear that in somebody and get them to just say the sentence. Don't narrate. Just say it. My life is none of their business. If you can just say the sentence, I don't want to be up here. Great. We can break away from this rhythm thing. And then you add emotion back into it. My life is none of their business. I don't want to be up here. It should be about the internal, the emotion. And that's where we get to authenticity. And then when we talk about comprehension, if I'm speaking in a rhythm, it becomes hard for someone to hear what I'm trying to say. But if I'm not speaking in a rhythm and I'm speaking from the heart authentically, you can understand everything I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's great. So the, the rhythm thing I would say is probably one of the worst things I ever come across because it becomes 
habitual and very hard to break, which is why I always suggest when people are getting started to seek out coaching before they do too many books because bad habits become solidified. Yeah, no doubt. Yes. Um, another thing that people do is um, in narrating in an, an authentic way is maybe they'll just have a face that they that just stays plastered on, like a facial expression um, or just an unnatural way of speaking. Um, my life is none of their business. I don't want to be up here. I don't want to explain my reasons, but I can't afford to miss another assignment. It's stiff. It doesn't feel like I really feel those things. Everything comes back to the internal. You don't have to work really hard. You don't have to worry about what the words sound like. When you look at this first sentence, my life is none of their business. That's the first line of this book. Who is this girl? This is a 16-year-old girl who doesn't want to talk with anybody. The second line is, I don't want to be up here. This person is annoyed. I can lean into that one emotional thing. And I don't have to worry about what any of the words sound like. Just being fucking annoyed. I just get it in my body. My life is none of their business. I don't want to be up here. Don't want to explain my reasons. But... I can't afford to miss another assignment. So it's really just being honest about who is this character and how are they feeling and not about performing voiceover, mm -hmm. um, having a voiceover sound. It's really about that authentic feeling on the inside. And if that is true, then the words will sound right. Yeah, that was beautiful. Sounded great. I, I love the... Um... The difference is how you can demonstrate what the problem is and then demonstrate how it's no longer a problem. Yeah. And that's uh, a lot harder said than done if you um, are on your own. Um, but I myself have taken coaching and I've worked with lots of narrators and directed lots of people and have self-reflected, listened to my own stuff when I listened back to my first audiobooks that I did. Oh, my God. So stiff. I was sitting very straight and enunciating very well, and it was so boring and uncomfortable. Yeah. And, you know, it's such an intimate medium. You can get really quiet, make somebody lean into what you're saying, and just want to hear the next thing. Yeah, that that is so common. I know that uh, I've seen Jeffrey Kafer and I, I don't know who else. A, a lot of people have posted about, oh, yeah, I've done, you know, 100 audiobooks now and I listen to the first 50 and I wish I could redo them all. Yeah. And um, and I'm the same way. I mean, uh, I'm on on one level. I always cut myself a little slack and I'm willing to say, no, you know what? That's where I was at the time. And you know what? It was great. And on another level, I say. Well, yeah, it kind of sounds like crap. Um, it's it's things are certainly better now, but you know, two years from now, I'll probably be looking back at what I'm doing now, thinking, "Oh my god, that could have been so much better." But it was where I was at the time, so I think that everybody I, needs to cut themselves a little slack and at the same time recognize how things have changed. Well, and I think even beyond that, uh, we should always be striving to be better. Yep. So of course we should look back and say, "Oh, I could do that better." Because why not? Why why work on a craft instead of just, uh, you know, having a mundane task to do every day? Why, why be a, a craftsman, if you will, if you don't intend to continue to get even better, to become an expert, to become the greatest version of yourself? Yeah. We should always strive for that. 
And then the other thing is that audiobooks are a changing art form. The ideas about how to perform an audiobook, about what is appropriate and not appropriate, have changed and will continue to change and will change into something else in the future. Mm-hmm. If you listen to audiobooks from 30 years ago, everything was much more, uh, everything was much louder, mm-hmm. more direct, more outward. Um, and so much of audiobooks was for the blind about articulation. And now so much of audiobooks is inward. It's about emotion. It's about carrying somebody on a journey. So it's really interesting when you listen to people who maybe started 20 or 30 years ago and how different their style is than people who are starting right now because they have to work harder to get to what the current trend is. Yeah, I, I hear that and, uh, and it makes me think of movies. You know, look at, look at movies from the 40s compared to movies from the 80s compared mm-hmm. to movies that are being produced now and see how the, the interests and preferences have changed. And some of that driven by people themselves, some of that driven by the studios who make those decisions. But mm-hmm. I, I really wonder sometimes what audiobooks are going to sound like 20 years from now when you look at the discussions right now about should I add music to my audiobook? Should I have a full cast or do a dual or just a single mm-hmm. narrator? I, I'm really curious to see what happens and how things sound 20 years from now. I, I absolutely think that consumers will drive a lot of those choices because Obviously, we've seen that in television that writers change the scripts on TV shows based on fan forums. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it will constantly change. We we if you think about commercials from the '90s versus commercials now, <laughs> commercials from the '90s like Chase Bank. It's everywhere you want to be, and now it's just Chase Bank. Banking made easy. Yeah. I mean, just like night and day, we don't hear that huge announcer voice anymore. Yep. Every art form is going to change. Music changes. And this is like any other art form where what the consumer wants, what the people in charge want, and what the talent uh, are doing, it's just, it's all going to keep changing and growing. So in that regard, it pushes anybody, even if you're a veteran, into continuing to educate, learn, practice. Yeah. No, that's great. I, I completely agree. So uh, since you're working at Blackstone, I know that Blackstone's a, a big heavy hitter in the uh, audio publishing world. I'm sure you've right. worked with some uh, some big names, some celebrities. You have any? Uh, you have a story or two you care to share about somebody that you've worked with? Names are all uh, uh, Yeah, I well, I had the pleasure of working with Neil deGrasse Tyson this year. Oh, nice. And uh, that audiobook is nominated for a Grammy, so I'm very excited. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, crossing my fingers for a win, but he's up against Carrie Fisher, so we'll see. Oh, yeah. Big, big year <laughs> for her. Um, I know. What, what's the title of, uh, of Tyson's book? Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Oh, right. Okay, so I've seen that one, and I thought that's mm-hmm. what you were referring to. Um, yeah. I actually kind of want to listen to that because I love Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he's one of those people where – you know, there's a lot of lot of talk in the forums about authors should not narrate their own books, and and most people recognize that there are definite exceptions to that rule. Uh, yeah. And I I would guess that he is one of those exceptions. <laughs> he he is one of those exceptions, and I I would actually I I do a lot of author reads for Blackstone. Um, I, you know, Blackstone didn't know me at all when they hired me two years ago. Basically, uh, my boss Brian Barney came to New York, and he just started asking people around town. Who who do you think would be good to run this booth and record and direct? And he said everybody was saying my name and he'd never heard of me. Wow. <laughs> and so they sort of, you know, courted me, hired me, and no one at the company knew anything about me. And 
uh, as I started uh, recording and directing for them, they sent me a couple author reads and started hearing what I was delivering from authors. And I've done some amazing author reads this year. And one of the things that I do, which I think is a little bit different from some of the other publishers, is that I um, ask for and encourage all of the authors who come in uh, to come in for coaching sessions with me before we record. Wow, I can imagine that would make a huge difference if they huge. if they can take something away from the coaching session. I have to imagine that for most authors who are not familiar with the art form of narrating, mm-hmm. they they would uh, they would you know come up a hundred percent very quickly. Yeah. So one thing I will say about authors that is easier to work with than actors is that they have no preconceived notions about what it means to do voiceover. So where a lot of new actors to narrating come in and they start to put on a voice, you say to an author, just go in, be yourself and narrate your book. And there is no inauthenticity to their voice. They come in the booth and they sound just like themselves. The hard thing is getting them to emote reminding them, I know you're sitting in front of a microphone, but you can use your hands. Don't forget your facial expression. All of these things will bring what you're saying to life. And so a lot of um, my coaching ends up being um, freeing up their bodies, making them feel comfortable to move in space, even though they're sitting, and then building their confidence so that they're not afraid to say the things that they've written. And uh, I did a book that came out, I think came out last January, called Scores, written and narrated by Michael Blutrick. He blew me away. This guy had so much fun narrating his book. It was a riot. That's great. And um, so I actually, I don't think that that authors shouldn't narrate their books. I think, uh, unless it's fiction, there's just really no reason. But especially when you're talking about nonfiction, memoir, I love working with authors. Um, as long as they are open to hearing what about them do I need for them to bring forth to the performance. Yeah, I think that's the key. I think most of the discussions that I see um, kind of focus on, first of all, the most recent one that I saw focused on fiction. Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, I think that they they just focus on the fact that authors typically don't have that skill set. If they're willing to get that skill set, uh, you know, mm-hmm. even even just in a couple of coaching sessions, I'm sure that for somebody that is completely unfamiliar with it, they would be, you know, 100% better that that quickly uh, in yeah. order to do their own book. So that's great that that's great that you can do that with them. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty amazing. I have two author auditions next week. And um, part of the audition process when they come in is that I coach them into their final audition. So we usually read the same section about six times before I submit their audition. Mm. And uh, I have another author who I'm recording at the end of January, and we have three coaching sessions set up in January before he comes in to record. Um, So I think it makes a huge difference. And, you know, I don't know if other publishers don't offer this or don't have anyone that can do it, but because I'm full-time at Blackstone, we have the studio, we have the the availability. And most authors that I've worked with are nervous and they want to make the best product possible Mm. and they know that their audiobook is going to be out there forever so they're excited to come in and work with me and get their skills up before they come in to do the big thing the big you know recording session sure yeah no that sounds um yeah uh getting back to 
Neil deGrasse Tyson because I think this is so cute. Um, he came in and he was just, he was so nice, so chill, so down to earth. We were, you know, chatting for about 20 minutes before we got started. And his book, I want to say, is about three and a half or four hours long. Mm -hmm. And he came in in the morning. He wanted to get the whole thing done in one day. Ooh. And so we booked it for that. And he came in at 9.30 in the morning, and we were scheduled from 9.30 to 5, and he wanted to get the whole book done. And I said to him before we got started, um, Neil, I just want you to know, I, I just want you to be prepared to not finish today. And he goes, no, 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 we're going to finish today. And I'm like, okay, like, we will aim for that. But, you know, just be, just keep your mind open that we might not finish. <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 no. I've done the math. I timed myself, <laughs> and this is how many words I can say in one minute, and this is how many words are in my book. So he made it into a math equation. Oh, that's great. But he didn't think about the variables, the variables being him being a perfectionist and saying to me, you know what, let's redo that whole paragraph. I know what I want to <laughs> do with it now. Or the variables of I need to go to the bathroom, or I start to make more mistakes as we reach lunchtime, sure, or... Yeah my stomach grumbles after eating lunch. Whatever it is that those variables are that we know because we're in the booth every day, he had only factored in like a handful of pee breaks and a specific allotted amount of time for lunch <laughs> and said, we will get it done by 5 p.m. And around 2 p.m., I said to him again, Neil, it's 2 p.m. and we're still not halfway done. So I just want you to be prepared to not finish today. <laughs> and I think we went to about four or five o'clock. And I said to him, I can't stay till eight. So we need a second day. And he was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. And he came in again and we had like a three hour session and finished the book and well, it was that's, fine. That's great. So he wasn't upset about it. No, 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 no. He was totally cool. Totally nice. I just love that. Like he thought that he had figured out audiobooks with a math equation. That is great. <laughs> and <laughs> audiobooks was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> sounds, sounds just like something Neil deGrasse Tyson would do. <laughs> yeah. No, he was great. He was super awesome. I had a great time working with him. That's cool. So Blackstone <laughs> does does books for uh, celebrity with celebrities, but they do books for everybody else too. So if someone wanted to work with Blackstone, narrator, and mm -hmm. get the opportunity to be the object of a future booth story by yes. Jamie Matler, uh, do they accept <laughs> unsolicited requests to be on their roster? Just asking for a friend. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think you can you can write any of the producers. I don't know how well that works. I, I do some casting, but a very, very small amount of casting for Blackstone. Um, I think I cast six books this year. So we're talking about a very small amount. Um, as far as, you know, what Brian or Grover will do, I don't, I don't know how they feel about uh, unsolicited emails and if those work. Um, I would say, you know, going to, uh, what is it called? Speed dating mm -hmm. at APAC. Sure. Always a great way to meet the producers. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I think cold emailing somebody, as long as you are not writing somebody too soon in your career, mm -hmm. I think people are so eager to get working, to get connected, that they write people before they're ready. And if we go and check your samples on audible.com and you're just not there yet, it's shooting yourself in the foot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's how that producer producer will remember you forever right. after that as um sounding like that yeah um, very similar to submitting to agents with uh, homemade demos yep yeah 
Um, and that's another reason why um, I highly recommend coaching because if you start taking coaching from different people and they start to feel, whoa, you're really ready. Let me introduce you to somebody. Mm-hmm. So coaching will not only make you better, but it will help get you connections in the industry um, instead of just cold writing people and hoping for the best and crossing your fingers and doing it when you're not quite ready. And the industry has changed so much that 20 years ago, you could bring a demo, have potential, have someone here and go, I can work with that person. Uh, but we don't have directors on every audiobook anymore. Mm-hmm. And budgets are so tight because we're producing every book that's published during the year and not just the top sellers. And there are so many narrators that are at a high skill level that if you're cold writing somebody, no one cares if you have potential anymore. You better be ready to go. Yeah. You better be ready to work at a pro level like all the narrators who've been doing it for 10 years longer than you. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Does, uh, does Blackstone work with narrators remotely even? Yes. Okay, oh, yeah. You. Okay. Yeah, Blackstone does tons of home record. I, I figured they did, but after you said that, I, I thought, oh, well, yeah, that's true. They have their own studio set up, so just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, they do do home studio stuff. And it's, def- you know, definitely if you're working from home, um, you can work for Blackstone. Mm-hmm. Just make sure that you're ready. Ready to go. Before yeah. you reach out, yeah. you know? Oh, that makes sense. Are you going to be at APAC this year? I will definitely be at APAC. Oh, that's great. I'm uh, I'm almost certainly going to be there. Not not quite sure yet, but um, <laughs> I, I know that they just opened up the registration a couple of weeks ago. So hopefully I'm going to be uh, getting that squared away soon. And uh, if cool. I do, I look forward to seeing you there. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah. All right. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for coming in tonight. I know that you are super busy. I really appreciate your time. Hope the wine Absolutely. was good. Uh, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> How about, I hope the wine wasn't bad. It was drinkable <laughs> and I drank it. That's good. My, my gimlet <laughs> is just about gone. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I just finished my wine. All right, cool. Well, thanks again for coming in. And uh, and again, I, I look forward to seeing you at APAC. Hopefully that's going to happen. 99%, but uh, but hopefully that'll happen and I'll see you there. And uh, and I'll definitely look into the, uh, the Arizona workshop thing. I'll get a hold of Al and a few other people and see if we can put that together. Yeah, just let me know. I, I love an excuse to, to visit my mom. I will. So where can people find you? In what regard? <laughs> <laughs> Website, email address, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you do. Uh, I am on Instagram. It's at Jamie Matler, J-A-Y-M-E. I have a website, jamiematler.com, but it is down right now because I need to revamp. Uh, what else? I think that's it. Okay. Well, that's cool. People can find you out there. All right, cool. Thanks again, Jamie. Thank you. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Jamie Matler for making time in her busy schedule to stop by the audiobook speakeasy. Carol Mondo was going to be here last week, but once again, cruel fate stepped in to foil our plans with a family medical situation. I'm glad to report that all is well now, and I promise you that Carol will be stopping in at some point in the future. I'll be taking a week off for the holiday next week, but not for the holiday a week after that. I've got a surprise guest for you to start off 2018 right. You can find the audiobook Speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. 
If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. A quick shout out to Cecily White, who left a very nice review recently. Thanks for your kind words, Cecily. I'm really glad you're finding our speakeasy chats enjoyable and informative. As of right now, I don't have any sponsors for the podcast, and I don't have any plans to go out looking for any. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. Until we see you here at the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!